Thank you, Pastor Gary. It's so great to be here with you this morning. You started supporting us 22 years ago when we were first raising our funds to go into missions, and we just are so grateful to all of you for being so faithful, for praying for us. I just love it when someone comes up and shows us an old prayer card, and I've been praying for you every day, and and meeting someone like Jessica as I came in, you're back, and it's just so great. It feels like family. You are family to us. Thank you. I want to uh, give a little shout out to our kids. Uh, They have stuck with us through this missionary journey. Jonathan uh, recently graduated from Wheaton College last year during COVID time, and we were in Costa Rica, sad because we couldn't be at his graduation, but this this May, he graduated with his master's degree in natural um, human uh, disaster relief. And he is now working with World Vision, uh, and we're so proud of him. Joshua it graduated from high school since we were last year, and now is at Wheaton College being a math major, and Joshua is here. My kids are up there sitting in the balcony going, woohoo, we don't have to be in front today. <laughs> and Julia just graduated from high school and she turned 19 this week and we are dropping her off at college in a couple weeks at Wheaton College also. And we are so, I'm just so blessed that God has been with us and helped us raise our kids on the mission field. And our kids have been troopers, so supportive, hiking into the jungle with me and and uh, being in all of our camps and being a support. And I'm just so proud of my kids. So that's a shout out to my kids today. And I know some of you have probably prayed for our, our family. And I really appreciate that because you understand the, the stress it is to be a missionary or maybe don't understand personally, but you have prayed for us. And I really appreciate that. So thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I'm going to go say hi to the kids. God bless you. Here we go. There it is. Now the light's on. Great. I guarantee you the kids will have more fun than we will um, because that's just how Jennifer is. She's got treats and games and all kinds of fun stuff. But uh, what, a great, what a great privilege to be with you. We, our excuse to come up uh, from Costa Rica was the wedding. And in dropping our daughter off in college and Gary and Joni said, well, since you're here, how about coming by? We're not on an itineration cycle. We're still in the middle of our term. Uh, so we're going to be extending out one more year to make it a five-year missionary term. Normally, we work on four years ba- out and then one year back. And, uh, but we're, we're doing one more year, taking advantage of a low season with some, some churches here on this side. And I've got a writing project, writing a textbook for one of our Bible school classes for all over Latin America, Intro to Youth Ministry. And I start teaching that in about four weeks, and we'll be doing the textbook. And, and uh, one of the things we get to do as missionaries is education. 
And this is something we've been involved with uh, forever, ever since we've been in Costa Rica. Amen. It's wonderful stuff. I've got in my hand this morning a little basket. Um, this basket was given to us about three weeks ago by Doña Caridad. Caridad is probably 80 years old. She is a Cabecar indigenous person living in the Bajo Pacuare region of Costa Rica, which is on the Atlantic side going down toward, toward the Caribbean. And uh, Caridad is one of three chiefs that are all cousins to each other. They're all women. So the, there's three villages together. Uh, Mururbi is her village. The next one over is Dueri, and the next one over is Hamekari. And the three cousin women are the chiefs of their respective villages. And we have a friend that uh, began visiting them. We cut out there. We have a, a friend that began visiting that area because her sons built a business, uh, a whitewater rafting business. If you've ever seen Costa Rica tourism promotion, uh, one of the things they promote is whitewater rafting. And so her sons had a business, and they bought a property near this reservation. And the mom, who is a follower of Jesus and loves the Lord, would go help her sons at the rafting camp, and they kept bumping into the folks from these indigenous villages walking around on the trails and started sharing the gospel. And I'm uh, going to tell you a little more about her family and Doña Caridad's story. But uh, the bigger picture of what I'd like to share with you this morning is that one of the great themes of the Bible is that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. I don't know about you, I don't like stumbling around in the dark at night. In fact, beside my bed, I have a pair of Crocs. You know, the, the shoes, the rubber shoes, the Crocs? Uh, people, people laugh at Crocs saying those are ugly shoes and that they're, they're not very stylish. But if I don't wear the Crocs and I slip my, you know, if I just walk out and try to go to the bathroom, I'm always stubbing a toe or two. And so Crocs protect my feet, right? So I don't like stumbling around in the dark. But God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. One of the great Old Testament prophecies was the people stumbling in darkness, have seen a great light. And when Jesus came uh, and walked among us, and he was God himself, the creator of the universe, walking among us on the earth, one of the metaphors he continually used was, uh, I am the light of the world. And then when he was talking to his disciples, he looked at them square in the eye and said, guess what? From here out, once I leave, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. John, in one of his epistles later on, would say, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And if we claim to walk in the light, then we have to obey him and walk with him and be immersed in his presence. It's like having your battery charged up every day on your phone, right? This for, especially for a younger generation, Boy, when, when your battery is at 5%, it's panic time, right? You look for a place to plug in because to be uh, discommunicated from your world is just tragic. Um, and, and the Lord's presence charges our batteries, and we're able to, to shine light where we are. That's one of the things that we are as believers is we are light. 
And, and uh, so I get to teach Bible and theology. That's one of my functions. We're the, I'm the director of our Bible college in San Jose. I have, I've been the director for about four years and have been teaching there since we got there 21 years ago. Uh, pouring into young people and not so young people that God is calling to ministry. And so our classes are filled up with people that would look an awful lot like you. People that in their local church um, got an assignment one day. Hey, you want to lead a women's small group? Hey, would you share with the youth one day? Hey, how about being involved in a couple's ministry? And they find that the Lord is using them in teaching and preaching and sharing and leadership. And the pastor says, I've gotten as far as I can take you uh, in the local church for training you. I think you need to go to the Bible college. And so, so they'll come to us. Most of them are adults. And, and I, we get to pour into them and see what God is doing in their life and, and teach them how to handle the scriptures. And I love the book of John. We're going, to be, we're going to be talking this morning. God is light. And how do we walk in the light? And how are we light in the darkness? And our passage is going to be from John chapter 9. If you have a Bible with you, you can take it out. Light in the darkness from John chapter 9. And, uh, and we're going to go ahead and read this story. In John chapter 9. Jesus has already said, I am the light of the world one time in the previous chapter. And one of the things I love about the book of John is that it was written about 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So how many of you can uh, have memories of something that happened 50 years ago? There's a, there's a few, you know, few that do. Um, are things that happened 50 years ago still relevant to us today? I was born 51 years ago, so I, that seems to be relevant to me today because uh, that means I'm here. Uh, but when people talk about things that happened in, in uh, 1970, 71, those are things very often that are very relevant for today. And, and John is writing to a new generation of young people that weren't present when Jesus walked on earth. They weren't there when he did his miracles. They didn't hear his speeches. They didn't hear him talking about himself or explaining what he came for. He's in another place. He's not in Israel. He's probably in Ephesus, a big cosmopolitan Roman city. And so when he's talking to young people and they're like, yeah, grandpa and grandma talk about Jesus and what he did when he walked around and supposedly healed a blind guy and supposedly talked to some religious leader and supposedly did... But that's not really relevant to us, is it? And John is saying, wait just a minute. I need to retell this story so that you guys understand why this is important to us. And so he starts with a grand picture. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Word was involved in speaking life into creation. And then that Word came down and walked around with us. He made his tent among us. And he walked with us and talked with us and he revealed God's glory. He came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them to the right to become, what is it? Children of God. He's saying, I had a buddy named Jesus, and he happened to be the creator of the universe. 
that came down and walked among us. And those that believe in him, their lives change. In fact, it's with, you know, when we're studying the Bible, it's important to have a sense of why the writer of any one book wrote the book. This is one of the things that we teach when we're teaching people how to do Bible interpretation. We call it hermeneutics. That's the big word, right? It's, is why did the writer write the book in the first place? And with John, he actually explicitly tells us. In John 20, 31, he says, there's a lot of other things that Jesus did and said, but these things are written so that you might believe. And that by believing, you will have life in his name. So, so John, in this book, he's telling, he tells seven miracle stories. He gives seven speeches of Jesus. And he says, Jesus said, I am seven times. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And I am the way, the truth, and life. In order to, to do three things. And so maybe visually we can do this. Jesus reveals God's glory. This is what John is saying in his book. Jesus reveals who God is. The people watching it have to respond with faith. Okay? So the word believe is the same as faith, right? Believe, pistu, or in Greek, is the, is the verb. It's the, the verb to believe. And faith is the noun, but it's the same word. So Jesus reveals God's glory. People have to believe or have faith. And then their lives change. There is a change that happens. We believe that when Jesus reveals his glory and people say, I trust that. I trust God with my life. I believe I deposit my life in his hands. Something changes. And John uses a whole variety of words. He, he talks about being born again, about having abundant life, about rivers of life flowing out of your soul. Wow, I love that. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Those things come into our lives when we respond with faith. He uses the word have faith, the verb, 98 times in the book of John, in the gospel of John. That's what it's about. Why am I saying all this? Because it's completely relevant to this story. Because in this story, he says Jesus did a miracle. He revealed God's glory, and the people had to respond. And when they responded, they had new life. So can we read the story with those eyes? Am I being too much of a professor here? I hope not. Uh, but let, let's go. Let's read it, okay? So this is John chapter 9, and it has six scenes. We're going to read them one scene at a time, okay? So should we put scene one on there? All right, scene one, the blame and the sign. As Jesus went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, oh, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Interesting they were looking for blame. Hmm. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember the, the first purpose of John's, John's uh, his gospel is to display the glory of God? 
This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let's go to the next one. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. That word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. So a couple observations from scene one. When, when Jesus was walking along with his disciples, they bumped into a human tragedy. A man who, by some terrible twist of fortune, had been born blind. And they were inclined to say, why did this happen? And look for guilty parties. Now, we live and work in Latin America, where 500 years of Spanish colonial conquests left a mark, a very, very deep mark on a lot of people, including the indigenous people, including Caridad, the lady that made this little basket. All the indigenous people were forced to the mountains, and, and uh, the economic disparity and the despair among these people is just tragic. They weren't even allowed to be Costa Rican citizens until the 1970s. They didn't even have their official, they weren't considered human. There, there are reasons things happen. You know, people talk about systemic inequality. We sure have it in Costa Rica. We have systemic inequality. But, but when the disciples of Jesus, their instinct was, who's to blame and who should we get mad at for the situation? He says, wait a second, guys. The, the point here is not who's, who's to blame. Neither this guy nor his parents sinned. How about we talk about what we do now? How about we talk about the fact that this man is sitting in darkness and the Lord wants to shine his light into this man's life? And so, um, you know, one of the funny things about, about finding blame is that we all tend to blame what we already dislike. Right? So the disciples were probably saying, yeah, this guy's parents were probably Samaritans. Boo, his Samaritans. We don't like Samaritans. Because that's how we are. The Pharisees, when the miracle happened, they want to blame Jesus because they were already inclined to not like him. Uh, and so we, we tend to look for, for the people that we already don't like as the blame. But Jesus didn't wait for him to ask for help. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't look at the guy and say, do you want to be healed? He just said, you know what? This man is in darkness. He needs help now. Let's do something. So Jesus says, he's in darkness. I'm the light of the world. Let's go. Let's go to the next scene. Scene number two. The neighbors questioned the guy. So, so the guy who has been blind is now healed. He put mud on his eyes and went and washed it off. There's no explanation. There's no theological unpacking yet. He's left on his own devices to go home and figure this out. So his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, wait, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some, some claimed that he was. Others said, uh, no, he just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. So he goes home 
and, and everyone notices a change, some people don't even believe it's the same person. This is interesting. Do you know that sometimes when the Lord starts changing things in us, slowly but surely, we actually start to look like a different person. How many of you, including those who, who are watching online, how many of you would say, the person I am today doesn't look a whole lot like who I used to be? Right? Ah, I thank the Lord for the changes he produces in us. Changing the way we respond. Maybe, maybe a few years back, our responses to opposition or someone getting in our face or saying something we didn't like were pretty ugly. I hope that if that's your, your kind of natural response, that as the Lord is working in your life, that changes. And someone will say, I hardly even recognize you because before you would have done something really different. But now, your character, your life, your personality, the way you respond has changed. Um, the, the Lord changes even our face and the way we look at life and the eyes, how we perceive things. In this case, his neighbors hardly even recognized him. So the, the neighbors, though, did recognize one thing that was important. The guy says, yeah, it was just mud. I put on my eyes, and I had to go wash, and I, you know, got cleaned up. No, they're like, no, this, this is something way bigger has happened here than what you're telling us. Let's get to the bottom of this. So they bring him to church. They bring him to the Pharisees at the synagogue. So the next scene is the interview by the Pharisees. So let's go to the scene number three. Oh, this is the end of the neighbor's uh, interview, excuse me. Uh, he replied, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Well, where is this man? I don't know. Let's get to the bottom of it. Scene three. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. <clears throat> well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Is there another one there? <clears throat> and some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, wait, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, well, if you want me to pronounce a verdict here, I guess I'm going to say he's a prophet. So, interesting. They, they didn't like Jesus. They were already going after Jesus. And in the Jewish mindset, there were three practices that were absolute musts. You had to eat kosher food, you had to be circumcised, and you had to keep the Sabbath. Those were the three absolutes. Now, why the Sabbath? Because that was how they honored God. That was their weekly rhythm of honoring the Lord. But they had a whole bunch of rules to go with the Sabbath. Hundreds of rules. Things you could and could not do on a Sabbath. And making mud with your spit apparently was one of them. Right? And so, the Pharisees, the only way they have, the only filters they have to figure out, is this a good man or a bad man, is did he follow our rules? And because he didn't, no, he's a bad man. They're trying to get to the bottom. Hey, have you had people question you? 
on why you serve the Lord? Why is it that you're protecting your heart from impurity? Why is it that, that Christians all of a sudden are drinking less? Our, our sexual activity matters to God, and we give that to Him, and, and that changes in our lives, and our vocabulary changes. And the way we handle money, if before there was a temptation to slip the extra bucks that people won't, won't miss into your pocket, this, these things change in our lives. And people will criticize, and people will come after us, and people will say, why do you do that? As missionaries, we handle projects there's a, there's a project that we've been working on for a few years, and we probably have a half a million dollars in it. And every one of those dollars has gone through my pocket, and I've had to turn in receipts on. And, and the more we're faithful to the Lord, the more he can, he can trust us with, right? And, and as we're serving him, all of a sudden other people say, is that how you do it? We like that. The young people that we disciple come over to our house, and they, they see how we talk to each other. And how we sit down for dinner and spend time together and listen to one another. And sometimes they say, we've never seen that. This, this is what light does in darkness. People see something different and, and the Lord penetrates all those dark areas of our life and starts to bring light and clarity and changes who we are. And so the Pharisees are trying to get to the bottom of what really happened to this guy. Oh, it was Jesus. Well, he did that on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. Well, sometimes the Lord works in ways that we don't expect. So now the Pharisees don't just question him. They question his parents. They want to call in mom and dad. So in the next scene, they, they, they call in his folks. And so let's see if we can get scene four up there. All right. They still didn't believe that he had been blind. Uh, I think we have one. There we go. And they had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? They're trying to pin his parents down to the ground on this one. Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. They didn't want to put their hand in the fire for him. I guess that's a real Costa Rican saying. Does that make sense here? Put your hand in the fire. Yeah, well, okay, whatever. All right. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone that acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And then the fifth scene, the Pharisees tried to scold him again. Let's see what happens here. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We know. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You want to become his disciples too? Ooh, they got mad. Next screen. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. That means that he was not welcome to come back to the synagogue ever. Okay? He's been officially excommunicated. Isn't it interesting? For, for the blind man, it was so obvious. Jesus healed me. Therefore, he must be from God. The man that told me to put mud on, or that put mud on my eyes and told me to wash off and healed me, obviously, he is a prophet. He comes from God. There's something real here. And, but he doesn't know exactly what that is yet. So Jesus has revealed his glory. And the guy's like, I know that was real. I'm not sure what to do with it. And this is where he's been thrown out of the synagogue and Jesus goes and hunts him down. You know what? I love that. I love it that when we have a glimpse of light and something starts to change in our hearts and we have a stirring and, and the Lord is speaking to us that Jesus will hunt us down and say, let me help you pin down what I'm doing in your life. Let me help you have clarity. And so in the next scene, scene number six, uh, Jesus, or scene five, we have a confession of faith. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, I love it, he went to find him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That was one of the titles that Jesus used for himself. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Uh, this kind of belief isn't just saying, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. You know, checking off in your head. This is, this is, I trust you. When he said, you are the Messiah to Jesus, he was saying, I'm on your team now. I'm putting on your shirt. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Lord, I believe. And then we have a little epilogue at the very end. And Jesus says to the people that are there, for judgment, I have come in to this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees that were with him heard him say this and said, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. When, when Jesus would talk with people, he'd say, blessed are those who mourn because they can be comforted. Blessed are those who recognize they need help because I can help them. If you think you know all the answers, I can't help you. If you're completely self-sufficient, you don't need my help. So why would you ask? So I, I have three things for us today that I want to draw out of this, of this story. This is just a wonderful story. I want to draw out three lessons for us today. The first one, dark places are an opportunity for the light of Jesus. Um, when I see something that's not right in my world, when I see a place of darkness, when I see a place that needs healing, that needs light, you know, we can say, why is it there? And we can get mad at it. 
and we can scream at the darkness if we want to. Uh, Jesus steered his disciples away from that choice. He said, how about, how about we bring light to the darkness? As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And once I'm gone, you're the light of the world. The Holy Spirit works in us. The Holy Spirit is with us. Jennifer and I, for, for 14 years, have had our kids, well, for 18 years, we've had our kids in the same school in Costa Rica. Jennifer has been the, on the Parent Association board for 14 years and the president for eight, I think, altogether. And we just graduated from the Parent Association at our kids' school. With, with Julia's graduation in June, we're officially done after 18 years at that school. It was kind of a, kind of a mourning experience. We were kind of sad about that, right, because we've been there for a long time. And we've done everything. And, and we realized people, people, they made a video for Jennifer at the end of her tenure with the Parent Association. And it was a whole bunch of people that, that had recorded themselves thanking her for being light in that place. All those times when you made the events that used to be kind of so-so, you made them beautiful. You made them full of grace. Thank you for helping with with the kids and the programs and the plays and the, all the special events that the parents would organize. Even, even, even the fall festival, sort of the Halloween thing, they renamed it to a fall festival and made it a wonderful family experience every year and the, and the Christmas things and Thanksgiving and, and the Easter celebrations. Not a Christian school, but light. How can we be light if we don't go where the darkness is? You know, if, if we're not there, we have to be there. Um, in, in 2018, three years ago, our world director for Assembly of God World Missions um, sent out a memo saying, uh, one year from now, in August of 2019, we want all the missionaries with the Assemblies of God all over the world to come in for a special meeting in Orlando, Florida. We feel that God wants us to do this. We feel this is important. Uh, we're calling everyone to come in. There's like 4,000 of us. And we want everyone to come in and we want to have a special time to minister to you and to pour into you and to believe for the Holy Spirit to fill you again and to get a, a new fresh vision for what God wants for you. And we want to, and one of my reactions was, why? You know, bring everyone in from around the world. If the Taliban find out it's one bomb and they can take us all out in one place, you know, why is this a good idea? And we went and, and it was a powerful time of vision and ministry of the Holy Spirit and man our batteries were charged up and they looked us all in the eye and said every missionary with the Assemblies of God no matter what you're doing you're working with kids you're working with education you should all be involved in planting a church support a church plant mentor a church plant plant a church find a place somehow be involved and and uh, turns out that oh Five months later, a thing rolls around called the coronavirus. You've heard of it, right? And we're still in shutdown mode in Costa Rica. We, we're still with vehicle restrictions. We wear masks everywhere. Uh, we're at the peak of pandemic yet, right now. <clears throat> and, and how would they have known three years ago that a year and a half ago, there was going to be a worldwide pandemic and we would all be cut off? Some of us in our own countries not able to leave for more than a year, which was our case. And, and the Lord gave them that word because we needed to be filled with light if we were going to be light. So we got home in August from that 
from that powerful time of ministry. And I was teaching a class on the book of Acts. And I was encouraging my students, man, the Holy Spirit is with us and we got to get out there and we got to be planting churches and being light in the darkness. And, and I realized that a group of our students were doing exactly that. A group of our, <coughs> of our students, there was like 10 of them, that had started a little, a, little, a little group and had rented a house. And so, so um, is there a picture there? Okay, so th- these are some of the students. And uh, uh, two of them have clothing businesses where they're professional artists and clothing designers. One of them is a professional drummer, a recording studio drummer that plays with some bands, uh, a doctor and a couple of others. And, and uh, they had started a little group in their house. And their circle of friends were kind of a hippie, millennial crowd, a little, little non-traditional one of the guys has a vintage clothing business and he does tie-dye stuff and he goes to all the hippie fairs to sell his, his clothes. I mean, they're in a really different world. And they realized that the really traditional church that they were part of, their friends wouldn't have any way to comprehend what was going on there. So they started a group to explain the gospel to their friends who had no access to Christians that they could understand. So they started in a little, a little house. They rented a little house and they said, they said, we're doing this little project. I said, I want to just go see. I don't want to go. I don't want to preach. I want to see what you're doing. And so we went and we fell in love with this little group. For one thing, they had some professional musicians and it was really cool music. And, and they loved the Lord and they were super mature. And then they got all this crazy hair and funky clothes, but they're really mature believers. And we're like, we want to get on board with this. And Julia, our daughter says, I want to go to this church. I like this. And so we made plans to move them over to our Bible school auditorium, which I'd been working on with missionary project funds, you know, for 10 years, almost nine years. And we were about ready to move them over in the last week of March of 2020, and we got pandemic. And we were shut down for six months. But when we opened up in September, we moved over to the Bible school. Let's go to the next picture. And uh, so this is our auditorium. And... uh, Immediately, we grew to almost 100 on Sunday mornings, and then we had some more vehicle restrictions and some more uh, shutdown things. And, and all of a sudden, we realized that among this group of millennials and young people, the Lord was doing all kinds of really interesting things. And so we realized that not only was this to create a congregation, but that we wanted to be, and, and we, we put words on this very early, we wanted to be a greenhouse. We didn't want to be a factory where we trained everyone and brought everyone in to make our factory bigger and our business bigger. We wanted to be a greenhouse where the Lord sends us all these little plants. And we water them and we nourish them and we get them all nice and healthy because God wants to use them out there. If you have a greenhouse, it's not to keep all those little plants forever inside your building. It's, it's, it's to get them out where they belong, where they can bring beauty and oxygen and fruit, and flowers, and things to life. And so we said from the beginning, we are not going to squeeze the life out of you asking you for 20 hours a week serving in the congregation. We want you to be out there and serving the Lord out there. We had a, a young man come in who is, uh, has a master's degree in cello performance from LSU, from Louisiana State University, a Costa Rican, that had gone up, he got a scholarship to, to, to play the States, came back, and he's in the National Symphonic Orchestra and teaches 
teaches cello at one of the universities. And he's there. He's with us on Sunday mornings, and he's playing the cello and part of our worship. And he says, I love serving the Lord, and I can be light in the darkness. And when he's out there playing music, full of Jesus, full of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, the light is meant to shine in the darkness. My friend Pablo, the guy that goes to the hippie fairs, I mean, he, he prays and fasts and intercedes for his hippie friends, and they're coming. He's brought lots of them to church. And, and we're seeing the, the Lord's word soak into people that have never been exposed to it before. This is exciting stuff. This has been really, really, really fun. Um, one of our guys has brought over 70 people, just himself, 70 individuals. He drives Uber. And everyone he talks to in his Uber, hey, you want to come to church with me on Sunday? And he's brought all these people to church. And some of them stick and some haven't. But, but uh, this is what it's about, right? It's about really believing that people need the Lord's light in their life. So the, the, second, the second observation is no one can take away your testimony. The, the, they, they, they're trying to pin down the blind man, right? Who do you say this guy is? He says, whether he's a good man or a bad man, I, mean, I don't know what you're trying to decide here. All I know is this. I used to be blind. Now I see. About three weeks ago, we, uh, we had an errand to do. We were preparing to bring some grocery run, uh, do a grocery run to the indigenous area. And one of the guys from our church is named Andres. We'll see if we can get Andres. So Andres is the guy uh, on the left with the beard. And uh, Andres was telling us his testimony in the back of the car as we're going to get, get the food, get the groceries. He says, my dad was an alcoholic. He was the second to youngest out of five kids. And uh, when he was 14, he was the hothead of the family. And he, he could not stand to be in the abusive alcoholic home with his dad. He couldn't stand to see his dad beating up on people and stuff. And he left. He ran away from home at age 14. And someone rented him like a little old tin shack lean-to onto their house for, for $2 a week. And so from age 13 to age 24, he was in and out of jail because he was starting to sell drugs and, uh, and uh, wound up with a, a girlfriend that he had three children with in that process. It was just a mess. When he gets out of jail, someone invites him to start talking about Jesus, brings him to church. He's discipled. He becomes a believer in Jesus. And he was starting to take Bible school classes. So he's been, he's one of our students, one of the guys that's been with us. And he says, but John, I've never been able to forget what it's like to not have any food for three or four days and to be living in the little shack connected onto someone's house doing drugs and with absolutely no way out. He says, so I've got to, I've got to help people. I've got to help people. And so he's in charge of our ministry with the church plant. Of, of helping with food for people that don't have anything. So he and another guy have gone around to, to all the neighbors in our, in our area and find out who are the people that need the most help in the neighborhood. And they've been inviting them in once a month, and then we have a grocery distribution, and someone brings a truck, and there's a big bag with everyone's name on it already prepared for their family. And Andres, because of the pain that he lived through and the light of Jesus that he found, he says, I've got to help people. This is, how, this is how he's helping people, right? So you, 
no one can take away your testimony. And, and the hardest things that we go through can turn into the way Jesus shines light through us. Through us. Let's go to the next one. Um, the, the third thing that, that I want to draw out of the story, when there is a sign, when Jesus reveals his glory, when something happens, that demands a faith response. And when Jesus goes and hunts the guy down and says, you saw what I did, and you've seen the controversy it's produced, but I need to look in your eye and say, do you believe that I am the Messiah? Do you believe who I am? Do you, are, will you commit yourself to be one of my followers? And when he said, Lord, I believe, I am in. That's what he was looking for. The, the seven sign stories in the Gospel of John Almost all of them end with a moment like this, where Jesus looks at people and said, do you believe? Will you believe? Or after the, the wedding at Cana, when Jesus turns the water into wine, it says, and that day was the first sign, and his disciples believed in him. They trusted him. They understood who he was. It's not just enough to like church. It's not just enough to like the songs and the worship. And, yeah, Pastor Gary preaches really motivational stuff. And, well, you know, the other guys, wow, the youth pastor, he's really good when he preaches. And, you know, I mean, you can become a connoisseur of church. But at the end of the day, Jesus looks you in the eye and looks me in the eye and say, do you really trust me? Do you trust that I am with you, that I'm good, that I'm with you in your life, that I want to use you, that my spirit needs to be in your life. The only way you bring the light of Jesus with you is when the Lord's Spirit is working in your life. And then people say, wow, something happened to you. What's going on? Um, I've, one more story here to, to kind of wrap up. Going back to Doña Caridad, the lady that made this is the little one in the turquoise-colored skirt. Her son... Uh, Lorenzo is the one with the green head wrap on his right, and Silverio is on his left. They have another son called Ariel. The first time we met those guys was in 2013. And they had, they had set up a little business beside the river so that all the river rafting groups that would come through could stop and have lunch at their place, use bathrooms, and I think they'd charge a dollar each to use the bathrooms and the landing and that kind of thing. And they invited us up to their, their hut. They, they make grass huts. I mean, this is a grass hut community. And, and Lorenzo and Silverio had this kind of crazy look in their eyes. And I said, tell me about, tell me about your life. What do, you, what do you guys do? And, and Lorenzo, the guy with the green head wrap, looked at me and said, I'm the president of the Cabecar Youth Association. And we believe in rescuing our traditions. And so we're bringing in a lady that's teaching us the rituals and traditions. They were bringing in a witch doctor to teach them how to do all the ceremonies and kill the chickens and the sacrifices and all this kind of stuff to manipulate the spirits in their traditional religion. And, and in some ways, I'm like, well, I'm glad somebody's preserving something, but sounds kind of sounds dark. Turns out the lady wasn't even Kabekar of the same people. She was Bri-Bri, a different, a different tribe, but she was just teaching them this stuff. And, and our friend, the missionary lady, Gerardina, who is in the striped shirt on the left, they consider her the enemy. She's coming in to wreck our culture and wreck our people and wreck our traditions. 
And this was, a, this was a real tension at first. A lot of the people in that area says, what is her intention? What does she intend to do? Does she intend to take away our culture? That was the question. And, and uh, the, the change came about two years ago when, when someone uh, gave us a donation of little devices called proclaimers. And I think the next, the next picture has a little proclaimer. It's a little solar rechargeable device that plays in audio the Bible in their language. So, so in 1952, a missionary named Aziel Jones moved to Costa Rica with his wife, Marion, and they learned the Quebecar language. It didn't even exist in written form. They actually codified it into a written language. Uh, and and I'm, I mean, now the government of Costa Rica recognizes the alphabet they, did, they, they created of Quebecar and the whole system of writing, and they created a dictionary. And, and their three sons that they raised in the jungle, speaking Quebecar, also became missionaries. And especially two of them, Timothy and David, and David's wife, Ruth, have finished translating the New Testament, and they're part of the way through the Old Testament. And they recorded all of the Bible that they had at the moment uh, in Quebecar, in audio, this Bible. And so on the little proclaimer, we have the Quebecar audio Bible in Spanish. And so the, the, the mom, Caridad, the chief, she insists on playing the Bible in Quebecar during the day and calls her sons to come in and sit down and listen to her while they're drinking coffee, while they're having lunch and so on. And they had been listening over and over to the Bible in Quebecar. And so this last trip, when we went in to bring the, the, our last grocery run in June, just a few weeks ago before we came back for, for the wedding, um, Caridad sent this little basket. And she said, I think the last several times that we've been, she sent little gifts. And so we bring the groceries, and our donor in Costa Rica wants pictures, so we take a picture of us with the groceries. And he says, now I have a gift for you, and I have to take a picture of you because mom wants to know that I gave it to you. So then, so we stand with him with a little, you know, little basket, and they take, he took a picture of us on his cell phone to bring back to mom. I love it. It's just fantastic. And, and we developed a really fun friendship. How's it going here? Are the poachers still coming through your property to try to hunt the animals? And how's it going with the, uh, the association of the indigenous? And, and this time, a little reflection. I always bring a little reflection when I go see him. And I said, I want to tell you a story about a guy that had two sons. And one of the sons was real obedient and stayed at home and worked hard. And the other son was crazy. And their faces lit up. We know that story. We've listened to that story on the little proclaimer thing. We love that story. We were just talking about that story the other day. And, and the look, the intense, like you people are coming in to take away our culture, had vanished. And he said, do you know that we sit and listen to the Bible in our own language? And my brothers and I, we don't speak very good Kabekar. We're actually learning our own language with the proclaimer and listening to the Bible in our language. He says, that lady that used to come to teach us the traditions and rituals, she doesn't come anymore. And what, what she was teaching never worked anyway. But, but you are teaching us about God and you're helping us preserve our language. Now, how cool is that? And, and our, our friend, Gerardina, the, can we go to the previous picture again? 
Our, our friend Herardina in the white and in, in, uh, in red stripes, she has been hiking into the mountains to visit all these villages for eight years now. She started at age 58. It's never too late, right? And, and she's been building relationship and, and teaching about Jesus and teaching them to pray and to listen to the word and to, and to walk with the Lord. And now there's three villages where there's groups of disciples that when we came for the food distributions, they called everyone together. We're going to have a service in our house. And, and they're hungry for the Lord, and there's light. There's light. And, and I think there's a, there's a conception that, you know, that somehow when we share the gospel, we're imposing rules on people that, that take away something from their life. It's the opposite. We are created to walk with God. We're created to walk in light. And the light shines in the darkness through us. So, we're, I mean, we're going back to Costa Rica in four weeks. And uh, we're, this project goes on. And our church plant goes on. And teaching in the Bible school goes on. And we're writing curriculum and part of all kinds of international projects. And I get to teach pastoral ethics and ministry theology to pastors all over Latin America. This is all fun stuff that we get to do. And, and understand that we are an extension of you. You're part of this. You are part of our team. Like so, so I say you're part of what we do, but we're part of what you do because you pray for missions and you support missions and you're, we're on the same team, right? And, and we all need to be light in the darkness. The Lord has called us all to be part of that. So I would love to pray with you. I, I, have, a, I have two final statements here. The big so what, if we can go, the big so what. I like to... This is how I preach at Emmaus when I get to preach. The big so what? Jesus wants to shine his light in your world so that others can believe and enter new life. You know, the, the ultimate goal of this is for other people to have new life. Not to take away something, but to give new life. And the big now what? When you see a need, don't look for blame. Shine the light in the darkness. I, I don't know what all of your lives look like right now, but I'm, I'm convinced that there's pockets of darkness in the world around us. There might be pockets of darkness in your life. And part of growing with Jesus is to say, Lord, I, I, think, you're, I think you're talking to me about a darkness in my own life. I want to open, open the windows. I want you to come in and, and, and bring light in my own life. And then in the people around us, you know, where's the darkness in, in the world around you? Let's believe the Lord. Let's believe the Lord that we can shine his light in there too. Um, we're going to, there's going to be an offering. Pastor Gary is going to come up. And uh, I mean, part of what we do as missionaries is we have projects and, and you're part of what we do. Um, we need to get some more proclaimers out there. They're, about, they're, they're not cheap. They're like $140 each. And and, uh, and also with our church, we need to go live stream. Uh, we've not had the equipment. And uh, we have a couple of churches that have started us on the way to be able to buy a camera to bring back. I'd like to bring back two cameras and a switcher. And uh, we're talking about $5,000 there. So um, as, as we take the offering later on after we pray, this is kind of where we're at. We need to, we need to bring this stuff back with us. But, um, but let's pray about our own lives and the Lord shining his light in the darkness. Can we do that? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, 
this morning I'm holding this basket. I think of Caridad and Lorenzo, Silverio and Ariel, and all the rest of the folks on the Cabeca Reservation in Costa Rica. And the, these are people that once walked in darkness, and now they've seen a great light. Think of Andres, who's in juvenile detention, came out, grew up in a family of darkness, and, and is turning his own experience, his own testimony, into a calling, into a ministry. And, and I think of each one that's here this morning. You, you know us, Lord. This, it's, we don't hide who we are from you. And I know that there's darkness in some of our lives that, that you want to shine your light into. And even now, and, and Lord, I pray that if there's, if there's some kind of lingering sin that's just dragging somebody down, that this morning there would be confession and light and forgiveness and cleansing that we would believe in you and have new life and walk in new life. And, and others that have seen darkness and have maybe blamed somebody or gotten mad at the darkness, but maybe you're calling us to, to be part of the light, the solution. So Lord, I pray that as your spirit is here and speaking to us and working among us, Lord, I pray that each one of us would walk each day filled with your light, with our batteries filled up with your Holy Spirit, to be able to be the light that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. John, if you would just hold and stay here with us uh, while you remain standing for a moment. Um, we're going to close, but with, with this comment, um, first of all, John, thank you for coming today, but uh, and to you and Jennifer both. Jennifer, I believe, is still with the children uh, ministering there. But uh, thank you for answering that call so many years ago. 